review the relationships, the associations. So, the complete tzaddik is called a tzaddik who has good. The phrase who has good, right? or I mean, here they translate as prosperous, is because the animal soul has been transformed into good. Now, does anyone remember what is the prerequisite that has to happen before the animal soul can be transformed into good? Well, we're going to get to... That'll be this next step. What has to be... Let's go back a step. What does it mean that the animal soul has been transformed into good? I remember what that means. Okay, so that's the answer to my first question. You have to remove the evil part, right? Okay, so what is the part of the animal soul that can be transformed and what's the evil that has to be removed? The desire uh, for evil. Jokes. No. The desire for evil. Yeah, okay. So the, the, essence, the essence of the animal soul is that the animal soul has this power of desiring, right? What it desires, that's the evil part. Right? So remember I gave you this analogy of like Plato? If you have the Plato formed into something, you want to form it into something else, you first have to destroy the first form. So the animal soul starts off desiring things that are ungodly. As long as the animal soul still enjoys, still delights in things that are ungodly, can it be transformed? No. That's the first remove all the delight and enjoyment of things which are ungodly, and then the animal soul can be transformed. Um, I gave you the analogy... Parallel, the mitzvah of the of the red heifer. Remember the red heifer. The red heifer. There's two stages. First, you have to burn the heifer, like burn the cow, not alive. First, you kill it, then you burn it. And once it's completely burned into ash, then it's mixed with the water. When does it become a purifying force? When it's mixed with the water. But before you mix it with the water, what has to happen? It has to be completely burnt. So the form of the cow is gone. What's left is just the raw material that it was made of, in the form of the ash. So to the animal soul. What part of the animal soul is redeemable? The fact that the animal soul can desire, can enjoy. Because that ability to desire and to delight can be a desire for Hashem and a delight in Hashem. But as long as the animal soul has another form of desire, another form, another modality of enjoyment, it can't be transformed. So before the transformation, all of the so-called... And they translate it here in English. Filthy garments. All the different modes by which it desires and enjoys have to be removed. Now, what is it that removes the animal soul's ability to enjoy ungodly things? Hatred. Hatred of which soul? The animal soul hates it or the godly soul hates it? The godly soul. Now, why does, what causes the godly soul's hatred for ungodly things? Right, so that's because the godly soul has what? Love. Remember this? Remember? Love, love implies hate. So it's the godly soul's love for God that causes it to hate ungodly things, right? So working backwards, the animal soul can be transformed because it no longer delights in anything ungodly. It doesn't delight in anything ungodly because of the hatred for ungodly things that the animal soul, that godly soul is expressing. The hatred of the godly soul is a byproduct of its absolute love for Hashem. 
And we want to talk about the godly soul's absolute for Hashem, we call him a complete tzaddik. We want to talk about the effect that opening has on the animal soul that's transformed. We say he's a tzaddik who is good. Okay, now, so it's like a little game of dominoes. If you have the first domino, you end up getting the last domino. So now what does that mean? Let's think this through. What is it going to mean with the incomplete tzaddik? If the incomplete tzaddik's love is incomplete, then what does it say about their hatred? Also. And if the hatred is incomplete, the love is incomplete. well, let's, okay, let's, let's, go back to, let's go back to the chain. If the love is incomplete, the hate is incomplete. If the hate is incomplete, then what's... The then, well, are all the different ways the animal sold has desires and pleasures going to be removed? No, because no, right? if, if it's the hatred of ungodly things that removes those desires, if the hatred is incomplete, some vestige will remain, right? And if some vestige of the original form remains, can it be transformed? No. no. So how much transformation is occurring for the incomplete tzaddik? None. Let's make sure we understand this and then we're going to go into the text. If some of the original, let's, let's, let's use the example of the Play-Doh again, right? If I make a little um, mug out of Play-Doh, can I make it into a table without completely destroying the mug? No. no. So if I want to keep part of the mug intact, I really like the way I shape the handle, that's going to mean that I can no longer turn that raw material into something else. Going back to the analogy of the red heifer, at what point can you mix the red heifer with the water to make it a purifying agent? When it's completely ash. If it still looks like cow parts, can you mix it with the water? No, it doesn't have any effect, right? It's not going to have that. It's not going to fulfill the halachic purpose. So the ability to transform the animal souls because it's completely lost any of its previous modes, any of its previous forms. So if the hatred, which is that, that, that element which has that eradicating effect is incomplete, some of the original mode of the animal soul remains, and therefore the animal soul does not transform. Instead of being transformed, we have a different word. What's happening to this animal soul? Subordinate. It's subordinated. Okay. So at the end of the day, what is the key difference, the key causal factor between the the complete tzaddik and the incomplete tzaddik, one has transformation, one doesn't affect transformation, is the love. Right? The love corresponds to the hatred. It's the hatred that removes the evil form from the animal soul. And when that evil form is completely removed, the animal soul can be transformed. If it's not completely removed, it can't be transformed. So at the end of the day, this all boils down to the love. Yes? You can also say that you, the way you get to love is through the, like you can start with hatred first. No. No? No. Should like, we talk about that? Why you can't start from hatred to get no, to the love? No, just the way that one of the examples you gave me lessons ago was that um, like, if you want to learn to love, like to really love something, you learn to, to hate the things that the other things. But that, 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 can, that can free you up. It doesn't create the love. In other words, in other words, that's like creating a clean workspace inside yourself. If you're, still, if you're still too deeply attached in real life to things that are, go against what you want to love, you'll never develop the love. But that's, kind of, that's not a genuine hatred. That goes back to what we said about the, 
the tzaddik loves God. In contrast, remember this, the Bainini does not love God. What does the Bainini love? Relationship. Relationship, right? So it, it, that, it's in that context I was talking about it. I don't, I can't, I don't develop love for a person because I hate what happened. I hate negative things happening to them. It's just, yeah. Okay. But why does everything boil down to the love? Well, let's, let's think about it. Okay. Step, last step, the animal soul is transformed. In order for that to happen, the animal soul can't have any remnants of its old, old ways of desiring and enjoying. What removes the, the previous ways of desiring and enjoying? No. Hate. Hate. Love, remember this. Like, think about it in real life, right? If I love one thing, I can also love something contradictory. I can desire contradictory things. But I, don't des- I can't feel desire and enjoyment while feeling hatred and loathing towards that thing simultaneously. Those are mutually exclusive experiences. So what gets rid of the delight and the enjoyment of the ungodly things is the hatred. And what is the hatred a uh, byproduct of? The love. And it's the love that actually is the, found, is, is the actual connective tissue between the person and Hashem. So now if the love is complete, the hatred is complete, the hatred is complete, the animal soul no longer de- delights in anything ungodly, then it can be transformed. And then conversely, the love is not complete, the hate is not complete, the godly soul, therefore the animal soul still remains some remnant of enjoyment of ungodly things, and therefore can't be transformed, only sublimated. That's the basic outline. So either you're completely transformed or you do no transformation. That's right. That's right. That's right. Now, there's degrees of subordination. There's no degrees of transformation. Right. Now, we're going to see all that in the text in a moment. Yes. Um, if you can't love and Because what you hate and love are two different aspects of the one thing. You having a complex relationship because, A, you're complex and you have a relationship with something which is itself complex. So the part of it that you hate is not the part of it that you love. For instance, um, if it's another person, you might love the sense of connection and fulfillment they bring to your life, right? And you might hate the inconvenience of having to do things not in your natural speed or mode because you have to accommodate them, right? But what you're loving, what you're hitting are two very different things. But that's exactly the idea of complexity. Complexity is many things being integrated into a whole. But if it's simple, right? It's just one point, then it's either it's one or the other. So then two people, by definition, can't have complete love for each other, for the person? Well... The Alter says in chapter 32 of Tanya, the only way to have complete love for a person is if the love is coming because of identification with the godly soul. But if you're talking about two human beings, then you're right. Because being that two human beings are two different beings, there will always be elements that create friction between them. And so the question is, is how the love interacts with the, with the other feelings, not an absolute love. That's true. Which, I mean, for most practical purposes is fine, right? I mean, like... Yeah, I'm just... But yes. This is, in fact, the issue is that, like, for instance, um, you, you find that, that, for instance, love often breeds intolerance. Um, you know, if you, the ones that you love have different values than you, that becomes very difficult to accept, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a tension in loving someone else who has their own mind. 
because love means I want to be together and I want to be together so I want you know, every, us to be on the exact same page to see things rightly. But the other person having their own mind means by definition they will see things differently. And so there is a kind of built intention in the notion of loving someone else. Um, loving Hashem, is there t- you, you yes, said that there is, yes, but, yes. but not because of the fragmented nature of it. Well, we're going to get that when we talk about the complete tzaddik and the incomplete tzaddik. We're going to talk about that. We're going to read the text, and we'll go deeper, and we'll, we'll get to that. Like the, in other words, this notion of complete love and complete hate, we have to develop. Because I, mean, I think we all understand that, that even though we're talking about a complete and incomplete, it's not, it's not numbers. It's not like the tzaddik has 10 out of 10 units of, of love, and therefore 10 out of 10 units of hate, whereas the incomplete tzaddik only has 9 out of 10. Right? It's, it's not like that, right? We're using the notion of quantity to represent a qualitative difference. So I want to read the text. I want to go into that. Okay. All right. We are in the where the little triangle is. The paragraph that starts: the incomplete righteous. The incomplete righteous is he who does not hate the sitra acha with an absolute hatred. Therefore, he does not absolutely abhor evil. Okay. So let's start there. He does not hate the sitra acha. Remember, sitra acha means things which are not godly with the absolute hatred. What is an absolute hatred? We're going to start with this. What is an absolute versus non-absolute hatred? It's a non-absolute hatred where you have a little accommodation for it, like a little bit of tolerance. Good. A little bit of tolerance. Okay, but now let's think about that for a second. It's not like hatred is olive oil and tolerance is water. And so you've got like a bottle and if the bottle is full, it's one liter of olive oil, so it's pure olive oil. If you empty out a little bit of olive oil, you put a little bit of water, so now it's like, I've got some of each, right? Tolerant, what kind of love can coexist, sorry, what kind of hatred can coexist with tolerance? It's a different kind of hatred, right? It's not less hatred, it's a different kind of hatred. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Or to think about it, going back to my water and, and let's think about the difference between water and oil versus water and sugar. What happens if you mix water and oil? Separate. They separate, right? They do not allow for each other to, to exist in each other's space, right? What happens if you mix water and sugar? It absorbs. It absorbs, right? right? So sugar is water soluble, right? And, and oil is not, right? A hatred which allows for some kind of tolerance is a kind of hatred which which, you know, is, you know, can absorb that, can incorporate that kind of tolerance into it. A hatred which there's no tolerance for, right? It's a different kind of hatred, right? One kind of hatred relates to tolerance like water and sugar. One dissolves in the other. Um, and the other one is like water and oil, right? Where, where no matter if you how much you try and mix them, they will separate. One cannot handle the other. Pardon the pun, but the hatred is intolerant of tolerance. Okay, so... Let's, uh, let's understand the difference between those two types of hatred. Okay. Okay. Now, and let's just go back. We, let, previously, we discussed the difference between hating something versus hating its effect on you. Right? So remember, I brought the example of, let's say, a child um, is having a difficult time. If the parent hates What's happening to the child, right, then the issue is like what's happening to the child, the suffering of the child. If they hate um, the effect on the parent, then they'd rather the child kind of keep it to themselves so it doesn't ruin the parent's day. Okay? 
So we're only, I remember, and in the realm of the tzaddik, the love is a love for Hashem, not for the relationship with Hashem. And the hatred is a hatred towards the sitrach, which is the Aramaic for things which are unholy, ungodly, not for their effect on the person. Okay? So the tzaddik, whether complete or incomplete, the thing that repulses them is the ungodliness of, the, of whatever ungodly per se, not the effect it has on him. Which means now, what does that mean? That means if you were to take the ungodly thing and remove it from the tzaddik's presence, would that decrease the tzaddik's hatred? No. Yeah. Right. If what bothers me, for instance, is its effect on me, the further it, more remote it is from me, the less it bothers me. Right. So think about, like, say, the difference between a tragedy and a disgusting smell. Both were repulsed by, yes? If you're repulsed by a disgusting smell, well, you just take the thing that produces a disgusting smell, you put it far enough away, and you're fine, right? What about the tragedy? If what, if what really bothers you about the tragedy is the, 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 the tragedy of it, right? Not that happens to be someone you know, right? Does it really matter to you whether it happens to your next-door neighbor or it happened across the world? It really shouldn't, right? Okay. So, if what the tzaddik hates is the unholiness, what kind of hatred could allow for tolerance? I mean, it seems like if you hate it, you hate it. Like, where's the room for, for, for some tolerance also? Um, Do you want to overcome challenges? Mm-hmm. Everyone's nodding their head ever so slightly because they're nervous about committing to. You don't know what you're getting into. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I feel like it's a trick question. Of course, it's a do trick I, question. Or do you like what comes from that? Like I would say, I don't like challenges. No. Or are you been trying to overcome them? I like what comes from it after. Okay, so you like you like the result of having overcome challenges. You don't like the actual overcoming of the challenge. Personally. <laughs> so what you were saying is that I would like to avoid challenges no. with, but have the results of having overcome them. If there was a concept like that, sure. Sure, but there is. But it okay. doesn't work like that. So okay, so now, now that we're going in the realm of reality, your choices are overcome challenges or not have challenges. Which would you prefer? Have challenges and overcome them? Personally. Or no challenges but don't overcome because there's nothing to overcome. You'd rather overcome challenges. Yes. Yeah, because the way reality is set up, yes. there is no possibility of having the effect of overcoming challenges without actually overcoming the challenges. Okay. Um, so that means you can accept, as much as you dislike challenges, that they serve a purpose. Yeah? Yeah. Now... But your first proposal was that you actually don't want the challenges at all. You just want the result without the challenges. And uh, I didn't let you indulge in that. Why not? What was my... Uh, I threw in some fancy philosophical wording. I said reality doesn't, doesn't accommodate you, right? Right. Okay. As if reality is just a fixed thing, right? That's just the way it is. But is reality a fixed thing? Like, the way the world works, is that fixed? 
Did God create the world at a certain point? Does he do miracles from time to time? So could theoretically the world work differently? Yeah, but it doesn't. But it doesn't. Yes. Oh, so now we have an interesting question. If I take for granted there is a set structure and a set system, I am forced into choices. Right? I'm forced into a choice which says, if I want what I gain by overcoming challenges, I have to accept, I have to be tolerant of the challenge of it being present in my life, right? We call that maturity, right? Because you're like facing with the, you're dealing with the choices. Like, or if I'm really not going to tolerate the challenges, I have to be willing to let go of whatever is gained by overcoming the challenges, right? There is a third option. What's the third option? The third option is to say, well, I mean, the world doesn't have to work that way. After all, God can do whatever he wants, right? It's denial. Why not? Why is that denial? Because you're not living in order to... You're not living, you were about to say something very, very useful. You're not living reality. That's right, you're living God. No. Sure. Is God... One second. Is God compelled to bring you challenges in order for you to gain from those challenges? Does he have to do it that way? So if my starting point is God, then I'm not okay with the challenges, even if I gain something from them. Why? Because they're completely unnecessary, right? Who needs them? But if my starting point is this is the reality and this is the way God works, right? In other words, I'm giving credence to something other than just Hashem himself. I'm giving credence to the way it works, right? The system, the rules of the game. Then I have to be if I want what's gained from the challenge, I also have to be willing to be. I have to, I have to be accepting, I have to be tolerant of the challenge. Does that make sense? Could you say that again? If I'm going to accept that these are the rules of the game, right? This is how Shem set it up, and that's a given, it's fixed, and there's nothing to do about it. Now I'm forced into a choice. Either I can give up on what's gained by overcoming challenges, or alternatively, I can accept those challenges as even though undesirable, but useful, necessary. In other words, I become tolerant of them. Does this make sense? Okay, let's use a more extreme example, okay? Challenges are easy. Okay, so yes? I don't, I don't understand how, like what you said before, how you got to, if you are, if you love, is it love God? I didn't say love God, it's just your starting point is just God. If your starting point is just God, Clearly, God created a system. So, but is He bound by that system? Is no. He happy? Okay. So, so if my live, starting we still po- live in that system. So that's ex- well. That's ex- my starting point is just God. Right. So I'm like, I'm like, there's the system, and I step out this and look. As God, as far as I'm concerned, the only thing I take as a given is you. And since, as far as you, God, are concerned, you're not bound by the system. So you're I you could hate the system. I can hate the system. That's if you're outside of the system. Or if you, if you take yourself out of That's it. right. If you're day-to-day living in it. 100%. Okay. Right. And this is, by the way, this is... This is theory right now. Well, this is, everything we're doing is theory, right? Everything we're doing is theory, right? Okay. All right. Um, so there's this, like, question that people sometimes ask. Like, what's more important? To feel connected to Hashem, but not do the mitzvahs, or to do the mitzvahs but not feel connected to Hashem. Have you ever heard this kind of question? Yeah. Okay. What's the answer according to Chassidus? Is it about doing the mitzvah What? Um, we learned it. It's about doing the mitzvah. I mean, we learned it somewhere. Maybe not. 
No, no, feeling. I said, I've said feeling. Feeling is a, is a feeling connected doing mitzvahs. Okay, that, that, I would say that, but that's not actually what Chassidus says. Chassidus says actually something slightly different. You know what Chassidus says? It doesn't use these words. Chassidus, uh, I'll give you the analogy, and then I'll actually say the words that Chassidus uses. Chassidus says like this. What answer would you give to someone who would ask you the question? Would you rather have, be blinded or become deaf? They're going to, chas v'shalom, do one of the two things. Either take out your eyes or remove your hearing. Which would you prefer? What's the answer? Which would you prefer? Oh, I can't do this. That's the, the answer is, the answer is, I call the police, right? <laughs> that's not a kind of question you should be asking a person, right? No, that's exactly right. In other words, like, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a hierarchical thing. That's, that's a violation, right? There's a wholeness of a human being, right? And like, like you should not be placed into the, in the situation where you're forced to choose between those things. That's wrong. Like, the underlying question has an immorality to it. Okay, so comes along, citizens like this, yeah? What is a healthy relationship with Hashem? To do a mitzvah out of a desire to feel connected. If you can place those things against each other, what does that say about your whole way of relating to the whole thing? It's not healthy to begin with. In other words, the very question, it's not, the very question is unhealthy. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? There's there's certain things that, that a person should not be faced with. Hashem created us to see and to hear. These are not something I should have to choose between, right? Your reaction is the right reaction, right? So Chassidah says, like, if you appreciate what, what a mitzvah is, you appreciate what feeling connected to Hashem is, these are, how could these things be one versus the other? There's something very immoral and very unhealthy about a person who's brought to that state where that's what they're asking themselves. And so we have to forget answering this question and we have to go like, what's the issue that brought them to that place? And deal with that. Okay? The actual wording in Tanya to be specific, because Tanya is very terse, and you guys have figured this out, right? But the actual wording in Tanya is, when it's speaking about feeling connected to Hashem and the doing of mitzvah, it says, to be sure, in both there is an identical light. Meaning, that as far as God is concerned, are these really two things that should be separated, how you feel in the doing of the mitzvah? And so if you can see them as two things, two things that are even opposition to each other, that one has to be sacrificed for the other, then the whole thing is warped. A healthy person's sight doesn't come at the expense of hearing, hearing doesn't come at the expense of sight, right? Okay. Right? In other words, now, what kind of person would actually become tolerant to that question? At what point would your would, at what point would your reaction be the wrong reaction? If I was literally faced like life or death. Yeah. In other words, let's let's say God forbid a person is ill, right, and they need they need something removed, and it's going to have a negative effect on one of the two. Well, then we say, well, I mean, you know, like you have to accept that one is going to get lost, right? But now let's go back to God. That's only if we take the medical reality as a given. What if, we, what if we acknowledge that Hashem 
creates the world and is not governed by medical reality can do miracles, then at that point does the person really have to accept that choice? Which I'm not saying, what is it? I'm, I'm not going to know whether that's what you should be doing. I'm just saying, if we take seriously that God creates the world and God governs the world and God is beholden to no one and nothing, right? Then even when the doctor has said, we need to operate and you're going to lose, God forbid, either sight or hearing, you need to pick. The person could still turn to God and say, I choose neither. And God would say, and God could theoretically say, okay, right? That. But if the person accepts the medical reality as a given, they don't have that option anymore. If a person accepts the medical reality that the only way to save their life is to do an operation would cause them to lose one of the two senses, then they have to become tolerant of that. They have to accept that as much as they dislike it. Right? So is the tzaddik in the realm of the former? Like, We're going to get to that. We're gonna get to that. I want to get the idea comfortable. Okay. Yeah? No. Okay. So, so here's the, here's, here's the, the basic, here's the basic question. If I am dealing with what's called in Hasidus, Mitzias, which means existence. And what I mean by that is that there's a structure. There's a way things work. If I'm, with, if I'm within that, are there trade-offs? Yes. Any structure has trade-offs, right? That's the point I'm getting at. And so if you really want something, you're going to be, have to be willing to be tolerant of other things, even though you just like those things, because that's the only way to get to what you want. Right? So any love that is within a structure... Sorry, any, sorry, anything, that, uh, uh, any love within a structure, right? Will, you will nonetheless have to be, that love comes with a hate, but you also have to be tolerant of the things that you hate. Let's give some examples. I love my children. What means something I hate? I hate when they suffer, right? But now in the real world, what happens to children who never go through adversity? Do they develop healthy? So therefore, my love for my children, which causes me to hate their suffering, also because of within a structure, forces me to also be tolerant of a certain degree of adversity as much as I hate it, right? So if I have love, which goes along with hate, within some kind of a structure, that hatred can't be absolute because that hatred has to allow for the possibility that the thing you hate might, under certain circumstances, be the cost of the thing that you really love. So it has to have some degree of tolerance. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now, what if there is no structure? What if it's all just, you know, magical thinking, right? Just, just, just Hashem, no, no rules. Then what? There's no need for tolerance, right? If you were to come to a tzaddik and you would say, do you know why evil exists in the world? It serves this purpose. Would it, it serves this godly purpose. Would the tzaddik say, oh, now I, okay, now I can feel better about it. It serves a purpose. I don't like it. I really hate it, but I can accept it. Is that what the tzaddik's reaction would be? Or would the tzaddik's reaction be, I don't care? Are we talking about both types of tzaddik? Very good. One tzaddik, if you come to them and say, this serves a godly purpose, then they're able to be 
tolerant. Why? Because their love for Hashem, even though it's for Hashem, is within some context. And so there's a tolerance for ungodly things in as much as those ungodly things have their purpose, have their role, whatever. But then there's a different tzaddik that, the, that they're, they don't, for them, the only thing that they give any credence to, the only thing that they feel beholden to is Hashem. And if this isn't ungodly, that's it. I don't care about purpose. I don't care about the larger picture. I don't care about how the structure, how the universe works. There's no way of, I'm going to give you an example where, where most Jews are, in, are, are complete tzaddikim. Okay? Most Jews. Okay? Let's say Rabbi so-and-so comes here and starts to give a class about the divine purpose of the Holocaust and how it was good for the, you know, in some sort of divine thing about, you know, the development of Jewish people to bring in Mashiach and whatever. They, whatever, whatever, they, whatever way they, they talk about it. They don't have to be awarded and punished, but whatever it is. But they explain the Holocaust in some larger context where ultimately a greater good comes out of it and therefore we have to be accepting of that and tolerant of that. Most Jews like no, I'm not. I'm not just. Like, I don't. It doesn't matter what you're going to say. I'm closed off to any notion that we should be tolerant to such a thing. Right, but that also means you're closed off to any sort of framing, any sort of contextualizing, any sort of putting it in what's called mitzias reality. You're just treating it as an isolated thing. This, no good. Not even intolerant of it. Now, in contrast, okay. People get, will, will you invite someone who, let's say, God forbid, lost a child. A, quote, smaller tragedy. I'm using that sarcastically. And for some reason, a person gets up and speaks about what they gained and how it helped them in life. And, like, now you start seeing some people are more tolerant of that, some people are less tolerant of that. Right? Now you go down a notch, right? Someone lost their money. They became poor. They became destitute. And they say this was the greatest thing that happened to me because now in retrospect, 15 years later, it changed everything about me and I became a better person. Now we're much more tolerant of it, right? So what's happening? That something we can really, really have negative feelings towards when it's put into a context, we can develop like a, softer tolerance. a tolerance for it, even though we don't, we don't actually like the thing itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, I, okay, that, that I didn't explain. I'm just trying to explain why they're different. And then I'll have to explain why, I'll have to explain why that's a lower level. By the way, it's not always a lower level. It's a lower level in the context here. Okay? In fact, usually I would say, argue, it's actually, it's a higher level, right? You're putting things in perspective. Um, so, let, let's actually talk about that now. Okay. There is a problem, I know this because I, 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 I counsel Bachram, so there's a problem, it may exist also with women, but I know it exists with men, that sometimes men have a hard time deciding on whether they should marry a woman. Um, and there is some version of, there could be somebody better. And so even though there's no real reason not to marry her, right, everything seems like it would work out, as much as one can know in advance, nonetheless, they can't seem to bring themselves to make that final commitment because there might be somebody better. Now, 
and let's not talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Let's ask ourselves, is that a rational thing? Is that a reasonable thing to do? To, do? Mm-hmm. to hold out because there might be somebody better. Makes sense why they think that. If you've seen a certain, I forget exactly what number, but it's like the first 40% or something like that of the things that you are searching for, like the best you'll find will be in that first 40%. So as, after a certain point, I don't think it is rational. Well, let's pick the specific case that you've actually found everything that you're looking for. Like, there's every, like, if a person sits down, honestly, like, could this work? It could work. It would be good. It would be, you know, as much as one can know ahead of time, right? There's, there's, there's nothing that, there's, no, there's nothing that's flashing red sign that this probably is not a good idea. Everything's points to it being a good idea, this marriage. But the, 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 the person is holding out because they feel maybe there's somebody better. That specific case is what I'm talking about. So you're saying it looks like it looks good. Yeah, it looks good. So then no, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, right? Prove it. Why doesn't it make sense? Because they'll always say they're going That's right. It doesn't end, right? In other words, the end result of that kind of thinking is the person never gets married. Which is different than if I say, well, I don't want to marry this person because of X. Then we can discuss, like, is it reasonable to compromise that or not, right? That's a separate question. Yeah. The first one, like, nothing's perfect. It's easy to not know the difference, right? Yeah, so, but, so, but, but, but I, I think... You're saying, like, overall it's good? Yeah, in other, words, in other words, I mean, obviously you have to have some sense of what, what to look for when you're trying to get, find someone to marry, right? But granting that, like, people, I mean, there's no guarantee of anything, right? But, but as much as you're going to find, this is just, this is, this is workable. This is good. This would work. This, you, could, you could build a happy, healthy marriage and family with this person. So why not? Because maybe there's better. Because maybe there's better will never end. Right? In other words, by having a bigger context, right? By seeing what does that train of thought lead if you keep going on with it, you start to realize that it's foolish, right? And again, we're not all rational people, so it's not easy to explain the, how it... It's not ex- enough to explain how it's irrational. You have to deal with the underlying emotions that are driving that irrationality. But for the realm of rationality, if a person is really able to relate to that and that speaks to them, that would, they would put them on a higher level than the person who just gives into that type of a thing, right? And you see this all the time with like little children. Like little children, they complain, they want something. And the parent says, well, we don't have it. And the child says, well, good. And the story, they say, the store is closed. And they're like, well, I don't care. I still want it. Like, and I, it's like, you're just going to make everyone around you miserable. You're not getting the thing because the store is closed. Like, the first opportunity to get it tomorrow morning anyway. Why are you throwing a tantrum? What do you gain by throwing a tantrum? Have some broader perspective, right? So it definitely seems to be that thinking things out, putting things in a larger context, appreciating how different things interact with other things is on a higher level than just saying wishful thinking, well, I don't want to accept the trade-off, right? Okay, but now let's, 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 let's set all of that aside and think about something differently. Before God created the world, what was there? What? God. When God created the world, what got lost or what got covered over or what got hidden? What? Not necessarily, but something specific. What? The fact that there's only God, right? Like on some deep essential level, there's only God, right? Once God makes a world, regardless of how godly the world is, right? There's now a sense that there's something else, right? 
Or to put this in other words, there's a sense, there's a structure, there's some rules, right? And now, don't those rules constrain and dictate how we can and can't relate to God, right? And so now there's going to be trade-offs, right? So now if we take that, but now, but, but in a certain sense, that's artificial. That's, I don't, maybe lie is too strong of a word, but it's somewhat artificial because at the end of the day, before God created anything, he was still God, right? And the truth of God is that there's just him. So by giving any sort of credence, by giving any sort of accommodation to the rules of the game, I'm kind of buying into the lie that God is not the absolute only thing there is. I'm, trying, I'm starting to relate to God as he's something within the world rather than he is actually beyond the world. When yeah. If I take the rules of how reality works as something that constrains how I relate to God. Well, because let's go through this, okay? Let's imagine that, you were, that, that we're Hashem, okay? And someone comes to us and says, I am hungry. Do we need to give them money or can we just give them food? We don't need to give them money, right? We can just, now, you say, well, God, you don't have any food. It's like, poof, there's food, right? Problem solved, right? But now let's think a little bit deeper. Do we even need to give them food? We just make them not hungry, right? The problem is they'll be hungry later. So what can we just do? We can make them that hunger's not a thing. He just doesn't need to eat, right? Let's go nothing. The person says, God, it's dark. I can't read my book. So does God have to like introduce a light bulb or he could just make it that there's light? In fact, does he even have to make it light? He could just make the person read in the dark, right? In fact, he could skip that. He could make it that the person already knows what the book says, right? In other words, the notion that there's a system is because there's a notion of means and ends. But if you're God, like that, that really true. Because as far as God's concerned, if God really wants you to be healthy... All he needs to do is decide that you'll be healthy, right? He doesn't need to bring you a doctor. He doesn't need to give you medicines. He doesn't need anything. So the notion that I'm going to use the money in a godly, like God doesn't need me to have money. Unless God specifically wants there to be money because God wants there to be money. But, but whatever, so, so when I start thinking of the money as something I get from Hashem, I'm going to use the money in the way that God wants I'm somewhat disconnected from the, from the absolute truth of Hashem. Because the absolute truth of Hashem is that whatever I can accomplish with money could just as easily be accomplished without the money. Whatever, you see, the Rambam says in the Guide of the Perplexed, he asks the question, does Hashem have eyes? No, we all know Hashem doesn't have eyes. Eyes are just a metaphor for what? What's it a metaphor for? See. So does Hashem see? No, he doesn't see. That's silly. Why do you need to see? To know, it's just a way of knowing, right? But if Hashem knows, he doesn't need to see, right? Like, do I need to see that, um, let's, use an, let's use an example. Do I need to see that I was itching right now? I just had an itch. Do I need to see that? Or I could directly I feel it. it. Yeah, I just know, okay. Um, now let's go further. Does God actually know? Like, what does knowing get you? Like, what's good about knowing? Oh, 
So if you don't know, you're going to make mistakes in how you act, right? So really just eyes is a metaphor for seeing, and seeing is a metaphor for knowing, and knowing is just a metaphor for always acting correctly. So in other words, like, the thing is, the minute you understand something as a means to something else, as a part of a system, it's really not godly anymore. In truth, the absolute truth. The absolute truth is that for Hashem, there are no trade-offs, which is very disturbing, because now you have issues of like, why there's suffering in the world, and we're not going to talk about that right now. Okay? But... If you really take seriously the notion that there's, Hashem is the only thing there is, and then He freely makes reality as He sees fit, then is, does, it ha- does, does it have to be the way it is? Does there have to be the trade-offs that there are? Or as far as Hashem is concerned, they could be different. This goes back to the importance of, like I said, the Exodus, right? Where miracles occur. The water turns to blood, right? The, the fire and the ice coexist as one. The sea splits. What's the message of all these things? Yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. Now, I, w- I would like to point out because as a as a as a, betic- as, as like a side point, there is a discussion in Judaism to what degree you're allowed to rely on miracles, and the bottom line of that discussion is that you are generally not allowed to rely on miracles. But we're not talking about behavior; we're talking about emotion, right? We all understand that emotions are different than behavior, right? So I could feel a tremendous amount of love to somebody, but realize they need their space and not talk to them. I could feel a tremendous hate towards somebody and realize I don't want to go to jail and not punch them, right? I could feel a tremendous amount. I could feel deeply inside that I have no need to make any trade-offs. And as far as I'm concerned, like, like I'm not, I feel no emotional attachment to accepting the, the ungodliness in the world in order to achieve some loftier end. And at the same time, I can coerce myself to behave in a certain way. So I'm not talking right now about the notion of what a person is allowed to do or not allowed to do. Can you allow to just sit there and rely on miracles because Hashem could do anything? I'm talking about a feeling. If a person were to really love Hashem for who Hashem actually is, as, does Hashem really have trade-offs? Does Hashem have to do this in order to get to that, really? Fine, but that's a second thing. That's a secondary thing. We're talking about the level of emotion. In other words, I'm, I'm, when you're talking about behavior, you're right. I'm talking about at the end of the day, I have to play by the rules that Hashem wants me to play by. But I'm not talking about how I behave. I'm talking about how I feel. If I love Hashem for Hashem, then in my love for Hashem, do I feel any tolerance for anything ungodly? Do I feel like, oh, there needs to be ungodly stuff in order to connect to Hashem? I don't feel that way. Because Hashem it goes beyond trade-offs. Hashem goes beyond you have to accept this in order to get to that. It doesn't really have to be that way. On the other hand, if I do feel that way, that I have to accept certain ungodly things because that's just how it is and that's how we are able to connect to Hashem, then that means I'm seeing Hashem in a kind of artificial way. I'm seeing Hashem within a sense that there's a fixed way things work. In other words, I'm, now, I'm no longer loving Hashem as a being unto himself. I'm loving Hashem as the way he is revealed within the reality in which I live. And then I'm taking that reality seriously. So I've somewhat bought into, I'm somewhat giving credibility to something other than Hashem that's constraining my love. And it's creating a tolerance in my hate. And that also, by the way, and this is going to be very important, that that also is creating a sense of distance between me and Hashem. There's now a sense of like Hashem is over there and I'm over here and there's this whole reality between us and I want to get past that to get closer to Him. 
if you love Hashem in this absolute way, where is Hashem and where are you? You're sensing that all there is is Hashem. So you don't even have a really a desire for Hashem. Like love at that point is not even like an intense yearning and passion for Hashem. Because if there's a passion yearning for Hashem, then there's a sense that he's out there and you're over here and you're trying to get closer. And there's all this stuff you have to navigate through. And some of it, you know, is very pleasant because it brings you closer to Hashem. And some of it is very, very, very bad because it's ungodly. But some of it you have to be tolerant because that's just the way it works. But there's a totally different kind of a love where the love of Hashem is, there's just, you're, you're just completely absorbed in a sense of all there is is Him. That's your whole life. That's your whole being. And so you're kind of outside of reality in a certain sense. It's a very different kind of love and therefore it comes with a very different kind of hate. It doesn't have the tolerance for the klipa, for the ungodliness that the, that the incomplete sadik has. Yes? Can you operate in a world like ours and navigate, because you have to if you're going to live on earth, navigate the, the whatever structure you're talking about and have this complete love of God? It sounds it's very like hard. Death it's extremely what? Sounds like not that like that. Just like it sounds otherworldly. It is otherworldly, and that's exactly the point I want to get to. Such a tzaddik has a very difficult, has a tremendous challenge. What's their challenge? This world. This world. In other words, th- this is what I want you to understand: is that the complete tzaddik, incomplete tzaddik, they're not a, they're not a difference of degree. They're mostly difference in kind, because we, we, what is it? Well, we'll see this reflect later on in the chapter. The incomplete tzaddik love for Hashem means trying to. Every love has, has, has something that it, it's forcing you towards. The love of the, the incomplete tzaddik, they're trying to get closer to Hashem. Is the complete tzaddik trying to get closer to Hashem? No. So now it's, now loving something else, it means I love Hashem, and, and so now I have to care about what he cares about, and he cares about the world, so I have to now go enter the world. And so to put it, the way to put it in a different Hasidic discourse, the complete tzaddik struggles to relate to the world. They don't struggle to relate to God. It is crazy. Like whoever gets there. We're going to get to that at the end of the chapter. In other words, if I'm taking, if I'm taking it as a given, there's me, there's the world, there's God, and I'm trying to love God, the kind of love I have is going to be a complete love or an incomplete love. An incomplete love, because part of my loving entails something ungodly, the way the world works, reality. And therefore, no matter how much I love Hashem, I have to be accepting of the way things are to some degree. Right? Like we said about, you know, God forbid a person's really sick and, you know, the doctor said, like, you have to make a decision or, or challenges, right? But that, that complete Sadiq's love doesn't sound like love. That's right. Love is, is it, you, you want the connection. No. So there's two. There's, so, so we have to now, we're going to talk about this. There's three kinds of love. There's a love that I want the connection. The second kind of love is I want you. Okay? And the third kind of love has no wanting. The third line of love is a kind of togetherness. In other words, like this. Let's use the notion of love of self. What does it mean you love yourself? Like you really want to, no, it's not like a really wanting. What is it? You are yourself. You're very attached to yourself, right? Right? Your whole world revolves around 
Okay, so what does it mean to be to love Hashem like an incomplete tzaddik? It means you really want Hashem. What does it mean to be a complete tzaddik? It means your whole world revolves around. He's the, he's the center. There is no, there is nothing. And, and so if Hashem is the only thing, the absolute thing, then, then that's all there is. And so there's no, it, it's it, the notion of like intensity and passion doesn't really exist in this kind of a love. It's a, it's a being, a, it's, a, it's, it's love in a very different sense of the word. Okay, the notion of thirsting and yearning and desiring it's not that kind of a love that the complete side of the cast. Yeah. So that's the thing. The, the, inc- the, the complete tzaddik has, has kind of like a trade-off. Either he sees it in the way it's all God, in which case he's perfectly okay with it, or he doesn't see the godliness in it, in which case he's completely in- intolerant of it. But there's never any middle ground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, so, so there's also two levels. So the complete tzaddik can, can kind of change gazes. That's an interesting story. So there was one time a drought. So one of the, one of the complete tzaddik, tzaddikim that there was was Rabbi Shem Baruchai. One time there was a drought. Now a drought, like we think of droughts and like it's unpleasant, the water prices are high. Like a drought is not a simple thing, right? Nowadays we have like ways of dealing with it in modern countries. But a drought back in the day or in places where it's undeveloped, like that's, that's a horrific thing. There was a drought. And the people came to Rabbi Shem Bayachai. And they asked, said there's a drought, we need rain. So what did Rabbi Shem Bayachai do? He did not pray to Hashem. You know why he didn't pray to Hashem? Think about what prayer means. And so where are you and where is Hashem if you're praying? You're over here, Hashem's over there, and what's in between you is a whole reality of things, right? But he's a complete tzaddik, so he doesn't pray. In fact, Rabbi Shimbarchai did not pray, ever. He never prayed, right? Yeah. Ever. He never prayed, he never doubted. Yeah. Yeah? I'm not getting into all the halachas. I'm not getting into... The, so, so, first off, so first off, I want to say one thing, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time, is that there's a notion in, in Torah that, of speaking in generalities, and then can, you can zoom in and give a particular. There is a notion in halacha that someone who, who is of a certain level where their whole life is the Torah, then they are exempt from davening. At a certain point, halacha was established that we don't follow that ruling anymore. We assume no one's on that level, and so even a complete tzaddik would have to engage in davening and prayer. But in principle, someone who's on this level would not actually engage in prayer. If there's really just, like prayer is not really the way they would approach something. So they come to, they come to Rishim Barachai and uh, they say there's a drought. Now I want to stop at this point. Why do they have to tell him there's a drought? Like he's a tzaddik, right? He cares about everything. He's, he's so wonderful. So like, why, like he doesn't know there's a drought? Is it like irrelevant? It's irrelevant. Because is the is the is there is it any less true that all there is is God because there's a drought? What if he's hungry wait, wait, and wait, thirsty? Wait, 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 wait. We'll get to the point. He's hungry and thirsty. Is it any less relevant to Rabbi? Sh- is it any? Does it in any way change the truth that there's only Hashem if there's a drought? So on that perspective, drought, no drought. Okay. Now, um, 
let's just keep in mind that Rabbi Shem Baruchai was also the man who was in the cave for 13 years, right? Okay. Um, when he came out of the cave after 12 years, right, he had this kind of an attitude, so he saw people working. Working! They weren't doing anything wrong. They're just going to work. What happened when he saw Peterson going to work? Rabbi Shem Baruchai looked at them, was intolerant of that. How can you go to work? You're rejecting that there's only other than God. You're taking, you're taking reality as too seriously. And what happened to that person? They died. And Hashem says, go back into the cave. <laughs> okay, back to the original story. So Rabbi Shem Baruchai, they come to Rabbi Shem Baruchai and they, and, and they tell him that it, there, there's a drought. And what does he do? He explains a verse from Tilla. He gives a, he gives a Torah class. And then it rains. Now, what's the connection between giving a Torah class and it raining? Well, what is the giving of the Torah? Like, like in, conceptually, what, what happened when Hashem gave the Torah? He revealed the, he connected the truth of God with the reality of the world, right? So when Rabbi Shemachai studied Torah, what happened is that the absolute truth of Hashem connects to the world, and therefore, if, if there was a drought, that, that actually conceals the truth of Hashem to the world, right? The world seems to be a very ungodly place when people are starving to death, right? And dying of thirst. So his studying of Torah brought about a godly revelation in the world. But the reason I'm bringing up the story is it is a different kind of a thing. It's not there's a person who's yearning to be closer to Hashem. That's not the state of the Tzadik Amr. The complete Tzadik is not loving Hashem with an intense love and he needs and he wants. No, no, no. Their love of Hashem is much more like the love one has to themselves. Except it's not to themselves, right? You want to hear a wild thing? You heard of Moshe Rabbeinu? Yeah. yeah. Right, another thing about rain. Um, in, in the Shema, we, we say that um, Hashem will provide the rain if we observe the mitzvahs properly, right? You know this? That if you observe the mitzvahs, I will give you your rain in the proper time. And that's what the verse says. I will give you the rain. Who said that verse? I will give you the rain. No. If you look, look back a few verses, it doesn't say, and Hashem said. It doesn't say, and Hashem said to Moshe. It doesn't say, and Moshe said that Hashem said. If you keep going back, you have to go back a long time. Um, you know what it says? Who's, who's speaking? Moshe. Moshe. So Moshe gets up and he says, if you listen to the commandments, I will give you the rain. How does that make any sense? This is a direct correlation, maybe? How is Moshe promising the rain? How could he promise the rain that I will give? He's saying, I will give you the rain. Moshe gives the rain? If your love of Hashem is the kind of love like a tzaddik, gomor, a complete tzaddik, right? It's not a love like you desire Hashem, right? Could you start slipping into the place where you forget what's the difference between you and him? Yeah. Like, even your very notion of individual identity can end up becoming subsumed in your sense of Hashem. It's very weird. It's nothing like, when you say it's other, it really is otherworldly. That's what I'm trying to come across, is that every hatred has a built-in tolerance because, I mean, you're true, because, like, there's a way the world works and you have to come accepting of that, right? Only something that, that, that is otherworldly, it's either so immature, it doesn't acknowledge the world, or it's so transcendent, it's beyond the world. It's a love of Hashem that, that it's not I really, really want Hashem. It's I'm so in touch with the truth of Him that I'm so attached to that, that that's my whole being to the point that that might even slip into identifying as Hashem. Don't we literally look down at people 
says it in the Chumash. We say it, you know, depending on, you know, if you're a man, you say it more times a day. If you're a woman, you say it fewer times a day, but we say it every day. It's not a, because it's not an ideology. Thinking your God in a conceptual sense, we'd look down upon. By the way, angels do this also. Like when an angel is sent on a mission, the sense of Hashem is so overwhelming, the angel will often say, I, and then what they mean is Hashem, right? In other words, you're absolutely right. If I conceptualize myself, right? You have this notion of a self-concept, right? Like I am a rabbi and I am a teacher. And if you like, if, if you have a, I am God in your self-concept, then um, yeah, that's, that's a big problem, right? Right, but it's not, right, this, this can only happen when you move past any notion of self-concept. And are these types of tzaddikim only born and not made? Yes. These ones and that are... And depends on your parents? No. Nothing to do with your parents. Okay? Now, the incomplete tzaddik, again, is someone who loves Hashem in what we say is more conventional sense of loving Hashem, which is they desire to be with Hashem. So the Hashem is the object of their love. They are the one who's loving, right? And there's a whole reality they have to contend with. And, as, and because they have a maturity, as much as they hate all the ungodly things, they also have to have a certain degree of tolerance of working with the system to figure out how to get closer to Hashem, right? So if something ungodly is an opportunity for growth, then they can be accepting of that because that's the only way to get closer to Hashem. By name? Yeah. Not that I know of. So, like, when people talk about hidden Sadiqim, are some of them, like, this type? Yes. Later on, he's going to say that these are very, very rare. In other words, so, like, this kind of Tzadik, right, they have a very, very hard time with the things that everybody else has an easy time with, and they have a very easy time with the things that everyone else has a hard time with. Like, like everything got inverted. Wait, but that, that doesn't make sense though, because if this person is existing in a world that like subscribed to like the order of the world and they didn't, that's gonna be pretty obvious. Like, well, it depends how much they keep it hidden. You want to hear an interesting story? The Rebbe, um, mother used to live across the street from Eastern uh, from Seven Seventy on the other side of Eastern Parkway. Has anyone ever been to Crown Heights? So Eastern Parkway, shall we say, a very busy, wide street. How many lanes is it? Four, five, four? I think it's three three on each side, right? Six lanes. Okay? The Rebbe used to jaywalk across. Um, He used to jaywalk across Eastern Parkway without looking, without changing his gait. Yes. Like he would just walk out of 770 and just like walk right across. No, 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 no. And you know what the weird thing was? They would just like be the break where there needed to be the break. The Rebbe stopped this after a short while because the Rebbe's mother said it made her very nervous watching from the window. <laughs> but the Rebbe's mother writes that when they were on the train and he was going to sneak out of Soviet Russia, um, he was on, she was on the train with him and it was morning and it was time to daven. Um, this was before he was married. Now, um, there's a game they play in Russia Back then, I don't think they play it now, but the name of the game was throw the Jew off the train, which is if you see a Jew, what do you do? You throw them off the train, right? It's a popular game in Tsarist and Soviet Russia. 
<laughs> so now the Rebbe, the Rebbe, I mean, the, 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 the Rebbe had a beard, but it was rolled, and the Rebbe wore a casket, and so like you know, I mean, he looks Jewish, but you could like it's not standing out so much, right? Because I mean, back then it wasn't like you know, there wasn't like a distinct like you know, they kind of just all the clothes more or less look the same. But if the Rebbe starts taking out his tefillin, right, and starts putting on his tefillin, like people are going to notice, right? So the Rebbe, it's time to die when the Rebbe takes out his bag with his tefillin, and his mother writes a diary that she was deathly afraid of what's going to happen. And as the Rebbe takes it out, a bunch of non-Jews around stand up. And they just stand up around the Rebbe. And so anybody now walking down the aisle can't see the Rebbe because there's a row of people standing. The Rebbe finishes davening, they all sit down. The yeah. Non-Jews How do I know this yeah. actually happened? The Rebbe, I mean, I, you can accuse Rebbe's mother of lying or not, but she said, I was there, that's what happened. Now, I mean, you have stories like this in the Talmud. Your story, right? There was, there was a, a, um, a rabbi near Pinchas Benyar. Remember, it was Pinchas Benyar. I could be mistaken, but I think it was Pinchas Benyar. And he was traveling to go redeem some captives. And he encounters a river. And he tells the river, you need to split. And the river says, no. I was ordained by God to flow as a river. I will not split for you. After all, I am for sure fulfilling my divine duty of flowing as a river. And you, it's unsure whether you'll succeed in your divine duty of redeeming the captives. And what is... Rabbi Pinchas Benyar say in response to the river? He says, if you don't split, then I will decree that there had never been a river here. Not, there will never be a river here. I'll decree that. There will have never been a river here. So clearly he's relating to the river from what point of view? That he's in the world or he's outside the world? Right, and so he can like retroactively like delete that from all of history. Like this is not a normal thing. This is otherworldly. Right? This kind of love, this is what I'm trying to do, is this kind of love. To love God as God has nothing to do with whether there's a world or not, right? So the world is irrelevant. So there's no constraints. So there's no tolerance for anything other than God. Now, you can see Hashem, that reflected in the world. You might not see it reflected in the world. These tzaddikim have a lot of, as the chapter's going to go on later, what exactly are these tzaddikim trying to do? Because they're not trying to get closer to Hashem. But it's very different than the incomplete tzaddik. The incomplete tzaddik loves Hashem, what we would expect love to mean. That there's Hashem, there's me, and I, I want to be with Hashem. And there's all of these things trying, that I need to work on to get closer to Him and to be with Him. There's a want in the sense of desire, in the sense of lack, that the incomplete tzaddik feels in his love that the complete tzaddik does not have. It's reversed, basically. It's completely reversed. It's so it sounds like also starting point is different. Yeah. However, right, like, right one's working towards coping with the reality versus like I'm in reality and I'm trying to get there mm-hmm. so does there, it almost sounds like a tzaddik would have to be born like that this kind of tzaddik as far as I understand would have to be born the kind of complete the tzaddik the complete tzaddik is born yeah. We want it. I mean, in essence, all of our godly souls are that complete tzaddik. In their essence, it just does it ever really manifest. Because the way, like, if it wasn't like they're born that way, you can never get to, to it. Right, 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 right. You can't unthink. Right, right. If we, in other words, the essence of every Jew's godly soul really is this way. It's just, do are we ever able to get to that place of our own souls? Um, I'll just tell you one other story, and then we'll end. There was a a, a, a very holy Hasidic Rebbe the, named the Holy um, Ruzhin Rebbe, Saul of Ruzhin. He was a grandson of the Magad of Mizrich, if I remember correctly, or great grandson. Um, and he was about a seven-year-old boy, and he came to the Alter Rebbe. So the Alter, the Magad of Mizrich was the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad's own Rebbe. 
and he had passed away. His son, who's known as Avram the Malach, Avram the angel, because he was very otherworldly, had also passed away shortly afterwards. And I think the, the so Ruzhner was a, was a grandson of Avram the Malach, and he was a young boy. He was he was a very special. So he came to the altar Rebbe. The altar was a, was a big Hasidic Rebbe, and this seven year old great grandson of his previous of his teacher. And so he came and asked him the following question. Now, just you guys have ever met a seven year old? Okay, imagine a seven-year-old, imagine a seven-year-old being bothered by the following question. We say in Shema, Hashem Echad, Hashem is one, which really means the only thing that is real is Hashem. And then we say, Vahafta, and you should love him. Who's loving him? Who's desiring him if all there is is him? Wow. Now he was seven, right? Seven-year-olds are still seven. So is he asking a, a philosophical question? No. No. He's asking, like, I, like, I'm supposed to feel a desire for, but, like, like I don't know, like, the altar explained to him different levels of godness, God coming into the world, like, whatever, but the answer is irrelevant. He wasn't trying to get closer to Hashem, was he? He was trying to reconcile being one with Hashem and, like, in the reality of a world. Like, how does that work? This is it. It's reversed. It's a very, very different kind of experience. Yeah. So do you think he was really experiencing that oneness that way, or he was just... Oh, like, yeah, 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 he was definitely experiencing it. He's so original. If you, you know, if you think the Rebbe is, does, like, once in a while, does these kind of things where he crosses the street without looking and, like, whatever. So original was doing this, like, every Monday and Tuesday, left and right. Like, so original was, like, one of these open miracle Rebbes all the time kind of Rebbes. Complete or the incomplete? Incom- the incomplete. The complete is intolerant. But On the emotional level. We're talking about emotional. We're not talking about behavior. Behavior, you can do anything. But then it's not tolerant of the klipas. In other words, either he sees it not as klipas, godliness, or he does, or he's intolerant of the klipas. There's no... He can't see that it serves a purpose. Because it serving a purpose is... Then there's a layer of reality other than Hashem. Either it's all godly... Or it's unacceptable. There's no in between. Now. Or he doesn't see it as a pig. Okay, so it's like. Right, but there's no. <laughs> there was one time the the Nochem one of the greatest students of the of the Balshemtov and of the Magad Mizrich. So one time they brought him coffee. Um, or sorry, a glass of milk. And he asked for a glass of milk, and they, and they said, well, we brought you the milk. And he said, where's the milk? Where's the milk? He just keeps looking for the milk. And eventually they realized that um, the milk was milked by a non-Jew. And the halacha is that it says that milk that a Jew doesn't see, I'm sorry, the halacha is milk milked by a non-Jew that a Jew doesn't see is forbidden. And they pointed out, oh, we're sorry, we brought you milk that was milked by a non-Jew. He says, ah, well, that's what the Mishnah says. Milk that was milked by, uh, by a non-Jew, a Jew doesn't see it. Hmm. In other words, like, he didn't <laughs> see it as food. Like, 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 if you were to, like, you were to come to the room, right, and you were to see the safer on the shelf, right, on the, on the table, and I would say, are you hungry? You say, yes, well, eat. And you're like, eat what? Like, you see the book, but you don't see it as food. You just don't see it as an edible thing. Like, the, the whole, no- 
Like it actually says about these kinds of tzaddikim, they cannot do things for the sake of heaven. Because what does it mean to do something for the sake of heaven? I'm, there's a means and there's an end. They're already at the end? That's right. So, they can't, the, the notion I'm going to eat in order to get, to be able to have the energy to serve Hashem doesn't work for th- this highest kind of tzaddik. They, don't, they can't experience the world that way. Either eating is itself a godly experience in and of itself, or they can't do it. It's just like, it's not real, or they're repulsed by it. They just, it's... Is this world like complete suffering for them then, on a like spiritual level? Like, unless like, they like were, a fish and, out of water? Yes, yes. Okay. Unless they work very, 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 very hard to connect to other Jews and appreciate the roles we're going to get into. They have to, just like we're on a mission, they're on a mission. And if they don't get in touch with their mission, it's pure suffering. If they're in touch with their mission, then it's not suffering. But it's a, it's a different, it's a totally different thing. It's flipped around completely. I'm also curious, and we're not doing this now, yeah. but like what their role is on earth. We're going to get to it. It's in chat. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to come back to the complete tzaddik and talk more about their role. But the important thing to understand is the incomplete tzaddik, where does the tolerance of evil come from? Not because they're okay with a little bit of evil, but because in the real world, the quote, real world, there's trade-offs, and you don't get to live in La La Land, and so you've got to like, deal with stuff, right? In other words, they have a mature love. The complete Sadiq's love, in a certain sense, doesn't have a maturity because it, it exists beyond... It's like the simplicity. Cons- it's, it's, very, it's extremely simple. Yeah. It's simple, it's absolute, it's just the ultimate truth. Their struggle is to relate to the complexity. They're not bound within it to begin with. Thank you. All right. Thank you. We will continue this tomorrow. And keep in mind, deep.